Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Hello and welcome to Word Now. You can visit us on the web at wordnowstories.com. This is our inaugural show, recorded live on September the 27th, 2015. Produced by Word Now Productions and the Fremont Theater Center in South Pasadena, California. In association with Eclipse One Media. Thank you for listening. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the premiere presentation of Word Now, an evening of true stories told by the people who live them. Um, I'm Carl Weintraub. I'm going to be your host tonight, and I'll be one of the storytellers uh, in this endeavor as well tonight. Uh, before we begin, a couple of things. Uh, firstly, please turn off your cell phones and make sure they are put away in a place where they can't reach out and grab you. Uh, next is that in case of emergency, the exits are back the way you came, or you could stampede over the stage and go out either way here. Uh, and I'm told that we could get uh, a false emergency alarm tonight at some point, because uh, throughout the day today, because of some kind of a short in the system, the burger alarm's been going off. So if that happens, don't panic. Now, in preparation for this evening, I was talking with uh, Michael Lossie right here, who is uh, one, of the, um, one of my co-producers in, in this endeavor. And uh, he's created our website, if you, got a, if you had a chance to look at that. And the, uh, there's going to be a podcast on that where you'll be able to hear all these stories again and tell your friends to, to listen to them. And even wrote the, the intro music that was playing just before I walked up here. Uh, and, so, yeah, right, yeah. Um, and in, in preparation for this first one, Michael was, uh, was asking us if, if we thought we should have music in between the stories. And I was thinking, no. But then I thought, you know, I know all these work songs. I could play, you know, a work song between each story. I could do that. And then, and then I thought, no. Um, what I should do is, uh, is write a story that, uh, or write, a, write a story around those work songs. So, so, so that's what I did. That's my intro. And uh, <laughs> so, um, okay, I'm going to play a song. My daddy was a miner, and I'm a miner's son. And I'll stick with the union till every battle's won. Oh, which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? Which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? Okay, that's complete bullshit. I'm not a miner. I've never, I've never, I've never been a miner. I've, I've had my share of uh, labor-type jobs. I've been, uh, 
I've worked in a lot of factories. I've worked construction. I've, I've been a janitor. I've been a, a, a mushroom farmer and a mason. As a matter of fact, uh, my first job title when I began in masonry was laborer. Uh, those are the guys that carry the mud for the real masons, who, by the way, do not consider themselves laborers. Masons define themselves as artists, which is how I've always defined myself. I've never, uh, and never when I was laboring did I believe that the labor defined me. Uh, and I'm not the son of a laborer. My dad was a teacher. Uh, didn't even have a tool in the house except for a Phillips head screwdriver and a ball-peen hammer that lived in an inaccessible drawer under a shelf in the kitchen because my dad had no idea what they were used for. And, uh, but he was a dyed-in-the-wool socialist and, uh, and a union man, and I grew up listening to these songs. And there, one of the reasons I learned how to play the guitar was I could, so I could play these songs. And by the time, at 10 years old, by the time I was 12, my dad uh, was standing me up at socialist party picnics or at, uh, at uh, union conventions to sing... Uh, well, if you want higher wages, going to tell you what to do. You got to talk to the workers in the shop with you. You got to build your union. Got to make it strong. And if you all stick together, boys, it won't be long. You get shorter hours, better working conditions, vacations with pay. Take the kids to the seashore. Well, you know you're overworked, but the boss says you ain't. He speeds up the work till you're about to faint. Well, you may be down and out, but you ain't beaten. You can pass out a leaflet, call the meeting, talk it over. Speak your mind. Decide to do something about it. Well, now you got a union and you're sitting pretty. Put some of the boys on the steering committee because the boss won't listen if one guy squawks, but he's got to listen if the union talks. He'd better be mighty lonely. Everybody decided to walk out on him. Yeah, so my dad taught me, uh, taught me about the Socialist Party and about the union movement. But what, but what my dad really instilled in me was a sense of idealism and a work ethic. I mean, I'm an actor, but I'm not, I've never been the kind of actor who can sit by the phone and wait for my agent to call. I, I've, I've always had to have a job. I've, uh, since I was 10 years old, I have always had a job. And I've always tried to perform that job to the best of my ability with pride and, uh, and diligence, even when that job was, uh, being, was waiting tables, which is the kind of job that a lot of us artists get, uh, us actors get relegated to during different portions of our life and career, except for my buddy A. Martinez, who's here tonight celebrating his birthday. And, and because this is a story about, I call him out because this is a story about integrity and work ethic and, he's, and fatherhood and that's the man who exemplifies all of those things in my eyesight. And, uh, uh, but, but, uh, but the first uh, waiting job I ever got, I didn't get because I knew how to wait tables. I got it because I could play the guitar. It was the Great American Food and Beverage Company in Santa Monica in the, in the uh, mid to late 70s. And, uh, and, I, and, and I got the job because that's how you got the job there, because that's what the servers did all night long. I mean, I, don't have, I have no idea how we managed to take orders or get food delivered to the table. Uh, the, the creator of the restaurant, a big man named Poppy Morgan, the, the quintessential impresario, would chew us out, not if we were providing bad service, but 
if we weren't performing enough, either quietly at our own tables or doing big numbers on stage, where sometimes the whole crew would, uh, would gather to, to do a number together, to do a big group number. And, and uh, I was into, uh, into uh, Randy Newman at the time, so I was singing. Sent you the delegate from Kansas. Won't you kindly take the floor and tell us what is Kansas thinking and what is Kansas for? Well, Kansas is for the farmer. We stand behind little man and we need a firehouse in Topeka. So won't you help us if you can? Well, Poppy uh, sold The Great American, and he opened a restaurant in Encino called Poppy Star. And he asked me to come along with him to create a large section of the restaurant that, where the entertainment would be anything but music. So I hired actors and poets and dancers and comedians and mimes and jugglers and magicians and comics. And, and, uh, and everybody had to create a persona for themselves and wait tables as that character. And uh, I, was, uh, I was into Tom Waits at that point. And uh, so, so my, uh, my persona was uh, disheveled. Uh, Lush, right? So it's like, uh, okay, what the fuck do you want for dinner tonight? <laughs> and uh, instead of a guitar in my hand, I had a, a rocks, I, I had a rocks glass. And uh, every once in a while, from my performance, I, I, like, like I was, like the spirit moved me in the center of the room, I'd break out into tight slack clad girls on the graveyard shift, beat the cement stroll, catch the midnight drift. Cigar chewing trolleys in their newspaper nests, grifting hot horse tips on who's running the best. And I'm blinded by the neon, don't try to change my tune. I thought I heard a saxophone, I'm drunk on the moon. Da -da -da -da, da -da -da. But I couldn't make enough money at Poppy's. I couldn't make enough money at Poppy's, and I had a family to support, so I moved to a restaurant where the servers were supposed to be making $100 a night, Dar Maghreb, Moroccan restaurant in West Hollywood, and I wore pointy yellow shoes and red harem pants, and I, and I poured, poured tea from high above my, my fez-adorned head and worked for the most despicable person I've ever met in my life. His name was Pierre, and everybody who worked there hated him. He was a slave driver. He treated us like shit. Um, the, the guy actually would keep us after work once every couple of months to deep clean the restaurant. Us, the servers, yeah? So what did I do? I passed out a leaflet, called a meeting, talked it over. <laughs> Spoke our minds. Decided to do something about it. Well, now we had a union. Were we sitting pretty? No, everything was actually goddamn shitty because what did, what did uh, Pierre do to punish us for unionizing his restaurant? He made us abide to the letter of the rules and regulations as set down in the waiter's union handbook. The worst union in the whole world. 
they stipulated that we had to take a 15-minute break every two hours. Okay, but not when you're waiting tables. You can't do that. You're going to tip me if you can't find me for, for 15 minutes while you're eating dinner? No. And, and besides that, they deducted that 15 minutes from our paycheck. And here's the best part. The union mandated that he could keep us after work to deep clean the restaurant every other fucking week. All right, so I had, I had assured my fellow workers that they couldn't be, that, that Pierre couldn't fire them for organizing a union. Uh, but Pierre fired me anyway. Uh, and I wish I could say that he fired me for unionizing his restaurant, but I can't. Because for all my ethical high-mindedness, unionizing the restaurant for the good of my fellow workers, the real reason I wanted to unionize was because I hated that motherfucker. <laughs> I mean, I wanted to hurt him. <laughs> I believed he deserved to be hurt. So for months, before I ever even thought about the union, I'd been stealing from him. <laughs> Me and the maitre d' who hated Pierre even more than I did. He'd, uh, He'd give me dummy checks for tables he knew were going to pay cash, and we wouldn't put those into the system, and uh, we'd pocket the money, um, you know, one or two big parties a night. So, uh, so much for idealism and work ethic. <laughs> my father would not be proud. Nor should my children, or godchildren, some of whom uh, will be hearing this story for the first time tonight. <laughs> And, and, I, and I tell it because as a father, I have a lesson to impart. Uh, part of my philosophy in life has always been that I believe there is no choice. I don't believe in choice. I believe we do what we have to do in life. It's a big subject. We can talk about it during the break or afterwards. But, but, uh, but I'm going to amend that, that uh, philosophy tonight. I'm going to say that standing by our, our high ideals and working hard, those aren't choices we have to make. Those are just the things we do. But in order to do something bad, you have to make a choice. Making a choice, it, you have to actually make a choice to do wrong. And I want to say to my kids that if you ever find yourself up against that choice, remember the music. I dreamed that I had died, gone to my reward, a job in heaven's textile plant on a golden boulevard. Where the mills were made of marble Machines were made out of gold And nobody ever got tired No, and nobody ever got old Thank you.
I asked each of the, each of the storytellers tonight to uh, write a little introduction uh, for themselves. Uh, so Betty Goldstein has no background in the theater whatsoever, but she has one on the moth, which makes her a celebrity here. <laughs> Betty Goldstein. I grew up in Pacoima back in the early 1950s. Tumbleweeds blew down our dusty, unpaved street. Our dilapidated little house had no lawn, no shade trees, and no air conditioning. We put wet underpants in the icebox and wore them on our heads to keep cool. I had roller skates until they were stolen. The same thing happened with my rickety bike. Anyway, I couldn't stay outdoors for too long because our neighborhood bordered the city dump and the air smelled of rotting garbage. The floors in our house were always sticky and the rooms reeked of mom's cigars and my brother's loaded diapers. Mommy could cook the flavor out of anything. <laughs> Her idea of a gourmet dinner was raw Oscar Mayer wieners. If a hot dog fell to the floor, she'd wipe it off against her muumuu, and if no one claimed it, she'd eat it herself. Daddy sometimes brought home cartons of chicken chow mein from the only Chinese restaurant in Pacoima, Choi's Chop Suey. <laughs> we never actually dined at Choi's or any other restaurant for that matter. And we never went to the movies or took a vacation. But there were occasional moments of fun. We had a piano and mommy would bang out my favorite songs on it. She decorated hard-boiled eggs with funny faces, and she always let me beat her when we played jacks. But for the most part, everything in our house was worn out and broken, especially the people. They lived lives of ignorance, poverty, mental illness, you name it. I was ashamed of my stinky family and our stinky food, and our stinky house. I never invited my friends over, ever. I daydreamed about becoming an elegant lady, like Audrey Hepburn. <laughs> my homeroom teacher, Mr. Yamamoto, the wisest person I had ever met, kept emphasizing that a college education would be our ticket out of Pacoima. That was all I needed to hear. <laughs> all through high school and college, I maintained a high grade point average and held down part-time jobs. I graduated with a double major in business administration and anthropology. I didn't want to end up like my parents. I used every moment as an opportunity to learn and earn. By the time I was 34, I headed my own 
mortgage investment firm, and I lived in a penthouse in the Wilshire Corridor. <laughs> I staffed my company with a cadre of personnel who addressed me as Ms. Goldstein. I carried a Bosca briefcase. I wore Ferragamo shoes, and I had my hair styled by David at Elizabeth Arden Salon. <laughs> my dream had come true. I was an elegant lady of means, like Audrey Hepburn. <laughs> Pacoima was a thing of the past. No more raw hot dogs from off the floor. Now I dined in exclusive restaurants and vacationed at five-star hotels. I hobnobbed with powerful and wealthy people, golfed at fancy-schmancy country clubs, and I danced at the governor's ball. I increased monthly quotas and hired more employees. I relocated my headquarters to a larger office overlooking the Pacific Ocean. I was so engrossed with running my company that I didn't take time to admire the ocean view or go to the bathroom. <laughs> I was so obsessed with meeting deadlines that I would skip lunch, also breakfast and dinner. And I often stayed in the office long after the janitorial staff went home, and on weekends, too. My compulsive work habits led to an acute kidney infection. But that didn't slow me down one bit. While I was in the hospital, hooked up to IVs, <laughs> I conducted business from bed. <laughs> Clients and notaries came in to sign documents, and nurses made courtesy photocopies. <laughs> Work was my life. Nothing could stop me. The moment I was discharged from the hospital, I sprinted to my BMW and raced to Palos Verdes to pick up a big check from a new client. Suddenly, my beeper went off. This was before cell phones. I got off the freeway and went to the closest payphone. The page was from my mother's neighbor. Mom had fallen and couldn't get up. Please call an ambulance right now, as I tried not to scream. Then I jumped back into my car and continued speeding down the 405 to meet my client. Afterwards, I stopped at the bank to deposit the check. I suppose I should have gone to the hospital first, but I was intent on closing that deal. Finally, I went to see what was happening with my mother. Mom had broken her hip, and during surgery, she went into cardiac arrest. A day later, she had a stroke, which left her entire left side paralyzed. I had been ashamed of my mother for as long as I could remember. But it suddenly dawned on me that as flawed as she was, she had done the best that she could. As she teetered between life and death, I realized that my hoity-toity lifestyle was unimportant. I wanted my mommy, my sweet, wacky, cigar-smoking mommy. <laughs> I was not ready to lose her. I had to keep her alive. 
I closed the office. I let all my employees go. I gave up my penthouse and I moved in with mom. Yes, back to my crumbling, filthy, rat-infested childhood home in Pacoima. <laughs> but I launched into action. I ripped out all the cracked linoleum. I threw out practically everything in the house and replaced it with, a new, with new attractive furnishings. I hired a plumber, a painter, and an exterminator. <laughs> I arranged for diaper service and round-the-clock nursing staff. I created a top-of-the-line assisted, assisted living facility. My corporate background had taught me how to get things done. I learned how to give insulin shots and hide ground-up pills in chocolate pudding. I spoon-fed my mom homemade soups and sang to her the song she had sung to me when I was a little girl. I was now the mother of my mother. It wasn't easy, but it was a labor of love. I don't regret my previous workaholic lifestyle. It gave me self-confidence and financial freedom. It also gave me an ulcer. <laughs> but at least I could afford the best doctors. <laughs> and it gave me the wherewithal to care for my mother when she needed me. Not many people get the chance to redo their childhood, make it right. All the things mom could not do for me I got to do for her. Mom's, mom is gone now. I live in a comfortable house, not in Pacoima. <laughs> I am a mother. I am a grandmother. I am recently widowed. For someone who doesn't have to work, I've never been busier. I exercise at the gym. I signed up for a 5K. I take creative writing classes and Israeli folk dancing. I care for two dogs and eight parrots. <laughs> I volunteer for several organizations. I am considering going back to school for my PhD. And as you can see, I love to cook. <laughs> I seem to be happiest when I am busy. For me, it's not labor, it's life. Thank you. Betty Goldstein. Kind of, a, kind of a rags to riches to righteous story, yeah? Lori <laughs> O'Brien is taking a survey for her own edification on ways people relax. She would love it if you would find her during the intermission or after the show and uh, tell her about yours. Lori O'Brien. Just 28 weeks into my pregnancy, I start having contractions. 
real contractions and is way too early to have a baby. So they put me on complete bed rest, lying on my left side 24-7 while on a drug called terbutalin, a derivative of epinephrine, our fight or flight hormone, which oddly relaxes the smooth muscles in the body, such as the lungs and the uterus, but it jacks up everything else. So my normal resting pulse of 55 shoots up to 110. My eyes start shaking so hard I can't read normal print. I feel like a lion is breathing down my neck and I don't sleep at all. Well, I suppose I must sleep, uh, but it sure doesn't seem like it. God, I just want to get up and go over to the glider that we bought for the baby and sit in it, but I don't because um, nothing if not disciplined, and this is not about me, so I lie there because I don't want my baby to die or to have weak lungs or poor eyesight or a half-developed brain. I guess I'm going to fight. I've always been a fighter. Muscled my way through life. I was a trained athlete, a swimmer, a gymnast, and I know from experience the value of swimming the extra laps in practice, so when it comes down to the race, I win. I was the one who stayed after gymnastics backflipping five, ten more times. I always take the stairs, sometimes two at a time, and my mantra, you can always do more, move more, but in this situation, my job is to do less. I can't have this baby now. He's got to stay inside me because I'm the perfect incubator. The best chance he has of living is for me to do nothing while jacked up on drugs. <laughs> what a concept. And I'm sure that if it was just me, if I were the only one who would suffer the consequences, I'd get up and rock the hell out of that glider chair. And I would glide out the door and I would cartwheel down the, down the, down the street because that is my fantasy. Actually, it's the way I'd go crazy if I were to go crazy, which my sister says just the fact that I'm saying that is a sign that I'm not crazy. <laughs> so in spite of the fact that I don't feel relaxed, I manage somehow to remain still or at least as still as a quivering, hyped-up body can be. And I do things that don't require actual movement, like I name my son Corey, for instance, make him a person, up the stakes by giving him substance, reality. But then, oh crap, I break through the medication and the contractions increase, so I'm hospitalized so they can flush the turbulent out of me to start over again, and they do this by giving me magnesium sulfate, a wicked drug that works on the opposite way terbutalin does. It's a downer. Like I've taken speed, a handful of niacin, and washed it down with a whole bottle of tequila. <laughs> My body is on fire. I can no longer focus. Faces are blurry. My eyes crossed. The room spinning. The floor is gone. And what the hell is this doing to my baby? Relax, I say to myself. Or is that the nurse who says it? Just moments before I start puking and pooping simultaneously. And then I have this odd flashback. It's my dad trying to get up on water skis, but he's trying to pull himself up instead of letting the boat do it. We yell, relax. And he yells back through his clenched teeth, I am relaxed. Now, I'm laughing. No, I'm crying. No, I'm laughing. No, I'm crying. I'm skidding back and forth between these drugs, and I'm hysterical, and the nurse says, breathe. Oh, sure, okay. I try, but it's not elegant breathing. No, I'm gasping, and I am so friggin' hot. I just want out of my body. But instead, I grab hold of my mind, and I put it down inside me with my son, and I shower him with love. 
cool lake water. Release the fear. The boat pulls us up, and it's like, well, I pass out. <laughs> the next day, they give me this little cigarette package-sized container full of liquid turbulin to strap around my waist, and they teach me how to stick a little stubby needle, like a tack, into my thigh that I am to change every third day to the other thigh, and I'm flying again, my own, my very own subcutaneous pump steadily delivering turbulin now so that there are fewer contractions, but I still can't sleep, and my heart's racing. But I'm back home, and Corey's still alive, and he's inside me. I monitor contractions. I allow myself 10 minutes an hour on my right side, and I keep thinking, a few months in bed is nothing compared to the 90 years of life I'm giving my son by doing this. Every minute that I remain still is added to his life. It's hard, but I learn to ask for things. Sizzling rice soup, please. It's the only thing I can keep down. The glider, can, can it be moved out of the room? Wind in the willows in huge print so I can read with shaky voice out loud to Corey again and again. I sing silly songs, describe my face, tell him the importance of staying positive, diligent, lying still. Harder than any race I ever raced or any flip I ever flipped. Damn! I'm like one of those mothers who lifts a car off her kid when necessary, right? <laughs> Yeah. And we make it to 38 weeks. Corey practically slides out of me. He weighs 7 pounds and 12 ounces. And he's perfect. He's absolutely perfect. He's exactly like I imagined. 20 years later, I'm diagnosed with osteoporosis. Could be because of those two and a half months in bed. <laughs> or maybe it's just because I'm a skinny white girl, but <laughs> regardless, <clears throat> it seems like I'm um, faced with the opposite situation from preterm labor. Because in order to avoid breaking a hip or becoming a dowager humped old lady, which terrifies me, it's recommended I take meds and up my muscling quotient. Do more, move more, right up my alley. So, I become the poster child for weight-bearing exercise. I join curves, turn gardening at my family's restaurant into extreme manual labor, climbing ladders with abandon, lugging heavy pots, bags of soil, squatting, climbing, digging. I dance constantly, even while putting on makeup. I jump rope, take Zumba, and six months of private ballet lessons. I buy a Portavibe machine and stand on alternating legs while it vibrates to improve my balance. I walk the hills wearing a 12-pound weight vest, and yes, I take the drugs for a while, and then I refuse because they are evil. I get acupunctured, eat mostly alkaline food while standing up doing squats. <laughs> Four years later, in spite of all that due diligence, my bone density in my right hip 
decreased since just the year before by 10.7%, which is a lot and doesn't make sense because I've worked so damn hard. I have done everything right, and my blood and urine tests are absolutely perfect. Almost. One tiny little thing. My DHEA levels are low, which, simply put, means stress and lack of rest is probably eating up my bones. DHEA supplements are not an option. I'm just saying no to unnatural face hair growth. <laughs> okay, so uh, maybe a spiritual path, huh? <laughs> <laughs> I take up yoga, choosing an active form that's less about posing and more about moving energy around my body and includes dancing, yay! <laughs> It's ideal. It requires diligence, of course. But let me tell you, compared to two and a half months in bed on my left side, holding my legs straight up in the air for 10 to 20 minutes is nothing. We do physical meditation, clear our minds through movement. This is heaven. I'm visibly stronger, more flexible. My breathing has deepened. My mind has slowed down. I'm happier, centered, and yet still after a year of that, this year, I've lost more bone density. Not as much as years before, 1.3% in that right hip compared to that nearly 11% last year. I am doing something right, but what is it? How can I tell? I'm symptom free. I have no pain, no contractions to monitor, no baby inside me. And the truth is, I despair. For the first time, I kind of give up. Why, I ask my yoga master, I'm giving 110%. I'm almost hurting myself in the process. And she says, that's not 110%. That's not even 100% if you're hurting yourself. The other day, I apologized to my personal trainer. I hadn't done my exercises daily. He said, don't think that way. You're too old. You've accomplished too much in your life. Give yourself a break. I told Dr. Brown at the Center for Better Bones, I'm hopping 150 times a day. She said, great, but you know, 50 will do. <laughs> Message, relax. Shit, I thought I was relaxing. <laughs> You remember, you remember how I said that if it had just been me, that I would have gotten up and glided in that chair and cartwheeled down the street? Maybe that's it. Now it is just me. And I'm holding on to all these ropes, riding this storm of activity, diligently staying in motion, which I truly believe is the key to wellness and aging gracefully but I'm gripping too hard, bearing all the weight. It's time that I let the boat pull me up so I can ski out onto calm water and focus inward, find that being inside me. 
like I found my boy 26 years ago. A being that I can shower with love, be completely dedicated to, and here's the trick, be strong enough to remain still for. So we're going to take uh, a short uh, break, 10, 15 minutes, so you can uh, refresh yourself, stretch your legs, and walk up to uh, Fremont right there and look at the moon. Right? Just take that time right now. You have to do that. We'll be back in a minute. We've got a whole bunch of more good stories to see afterwards. Come back. This is Word Now. You can visit us on the web at wordnowstories.com. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.